Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 25. Half an hour after the crash, the king of the underwater realm was dead, his body decomposing in minutes into a mess of moist, white slivers. Cornucope was alive and conscious, but with a broken arm. Estacia improved a sling from a headscarf she kept in her handbag, then helped him out of the horseless carriage. They stood in a ruined, muddy, isolated environment. Estacia could not grasp where they were. They'd crashed somewhere between Shepperton and Sunbury, because everything looked different. Even the hair that plagued London was here reduced to bedraggled tufts, and she could hear gunfire and explosions. It is like a war zone, Conicope said. I remember seeing something like this in southern Africa when we went to bop the Zulus. Estacia nodded. The wind moaned across muddy flats and there was not a person in sight. Bombed houses let fall clouds of masonry. Smoke rose from half-dead bonfires. It did not look promising. Finding Fordbridge Road, they followed it east for a while, but halted when they came across a number of bloated horse corpses, and, in an adjacent field, a line of hastily erected white crosses. Graves, Estacia said. Cornucope pointed along the road to where it met Thames Street, there are some men over there. They approached the men, all of whom wore uniforms of the British Army. Who are you? the group's corporal asked in a gruff voice. Cornucope pointed back down the road and replied, We crashed our horseless carriage back there. I'm Cornucope Weatherby of the Suicide Club, on official government business. What's going on here? The Germans have broken out of their pens and started a small war, the corporal replied. We turfed them out of their Swiss cottage lair, but it turned out the Kaiser had an even larger base around Fulwell Park and Hampton Hill, which he disguised beneath all the hair. All bally hell has been let loose. You're in danger here. You mustn't go onwards. We have to return to London as soon as possible to see the Prime Minister, Cornucope said. We have to go onward. I can't guarantee your safety. You go east at your own risk. Cornucope looked at Estacia, who in response said, We've got no choice. The corporal, his mood now softened, said, Look here, I can't let you go on without any gear. My lads will give you food and a revolver each, but I warn you, the Germans have got terrible machines of war, not just rifles and cavalry. Any advice about what route to take? Estacia asked. Try to go round the central war zone. Through Hampton, Hampton Wick, Kingston upon Thames, if you can make it. But all the bridges are under a fire around here, and I don't rate your chances of crossing the Thames. At Twickenham and Richmond seem fairly safe. That's where I'd head for if I was in your position. Then if you're lucky, you might get a train to Waterloo. But the services are now patchy at best. 
Very well, Kornikope said, shaking the corporal's hand. Thank you for the advice, and good luck, sir. Having received their equipment and food, and a new sling and willow-bark painkillers for Cornucope, they trudged on, following the way to Upper Sunbury Road. Peering north, Estatia saw flashes of light over Hampton Hill, heard explosions like thunder, and even, when it was quiet for a moment, the faintest hint of men shrieking and horses neighing. She shivered. Hairy London was a city in which the vital role played by transport had become obvious. Chaos had come to live in the city, now that the people could not move freely. For a while, the war seemed far away, but as the afternoon faded into grey clouds and drifting smoke, they heard the unmistakable noise of conflict. Hiding in a bomb crater, they waited for the fighting to fade or move on. But it did not, and in the end, the noise of rifles and whizzing bullets was too much to bear, so they ran to a collapsed building and hid inside. Two soldiers were already there. Keep your heads down, one shouted. What the hell are you doing round here? asked the other. We are lost, Estacia replied. We're trying to get to Richmond. Surge is coming us now in a wagonette, the soldier said. We'll give you a ride as far as we can. As he spoke, a clattering wagonette rolled up, pulled by baker-like shires, whose great flanks sweated oil and kerosene. Cornucope jumped aboard the trailer at the back, then pulled Estatia up, so that, on their knees, they huddled amidst a group of sweaty, tin-hatted soldiers. The wagonette rolled on down Hampton Court Road, turning left before reaching the bridge and the palace. But as they struck the wilder reaches of Hampton Court Park, a great explosion rocked the land all around, the wagonette falling on its side, the trailer collapsing. Luckily, Cornucope landed on his uninjured side. Then Estatia saw troops rushing towards them down Chestnut Avenue. Bushy Park had been taken by the Bosch. came the cry from the officers. Cornucope took Estatia's hand and ran towards the palace, visible as a bomb-blasted ruin behind clouds of smoke and nitro-vapour. By now, Estatia was out of breath and had to rest, so they hid in an abandoned bunker. Estatia lit a zoo lantern and peered around. The funk hole was deserted. Look, she said, biscuits, tea and a bowl of fruit. Soldiers are long gone, Cornicope replied. It's every person for themselves, I fear. We must eat this food. They ate as the bombs exploded along Hampton Court Road, then packed the uneaten fruit with their other supplies, taking also a map and a packet of automatic candles before leaving. Outside, the scene was infernal. To the flare-red, smoking, wasted north, they saw the silhouettes of gun towers striding between Bushy Park and Hampton Court Park. Dead bodies flew into the air as explosions rocked the road, and always they heard the terrifying neighing of horses. Estatia said, We must follow the Thames around the park and hope Kingston and Thames is still in our hands. Crossing the river by boat is going to be impossible. 
but the main road might be possible up to Twickenham. It is our best hope, Cornucope agreed. Come along, while we still have each other. They hugged, kissed, then headed south. But in the gathering gloom and with smoke and vapours rolling like sea fog across the park, they soon got lost and they hit Hampton Court Road again. The noise of strife was receding. There were few explosions and only a little gunfire, and she wondered if the combatants had packed it in for the night. Let's follow the road to Kingston-upon-Thames, she whispered. They walked on, hand in hand. The rain clouds dispersed and the moon rose, lighting a scene of eerie carnage. Banks of smoke, horse corpses with their legs in the air, craters, ruins and shattered houses. Bodies lay unburied in their dozens, some plundered half-naked, others torn limb from limb. And then Estatia saw a great figure striding amidst the banks of smoke. It looked like a giant man, but surely he was too tall to be real and living. Darkness followed him like a spectral mist. His hat was wide-brimmed, his cloak black as coal, but his eyes, though invisible, glittered as if they were made of adamantium. Then he saw them and approached, kneeling down a few yards away so that he could speak with them. Where's Inzi? His voice was like rolling boulders in a mountain valley, and it seemed to come from Germany itself, reflected and amplified by the nocturnal aura. Cornucope replied, Ich bin Cornucope Wetherby, und das ist meine Frau, Estatia Wetherby. Wer sind Sie? Ich bin der Tod. Estatia, though she knew almost no German, grasped nonetheless that this was death, the Teutonic death, patrolling the fields of the Kaiser's mini-war. She grabbed Cornucope's hand and whispered, We've got to get away. Niemand kann dem Tod entkommen. He said nobody can escape death. Well, he's right, Estatia replied. But if you tell him we're not German, he might let us go. Wer sind Englander? Cornucope explained. Englander, sie gehören mir also nicht. Wohin gehen sie? Where are we going? Cornucope muttered to himself. Nach Richmond. Ich kann sie bis groß deep in der Nähe von Twickenham tragen. Will we be safe with you if you take us to Twickenham? Ja, wer Deutscher bin ich während Wort Licht. Ich trage sie am Rücken. He's going to carry us, Cornucope said. Germans are his prey. A death stood upright, then picked them up and nestled them in his arms, one on each side, as if he was carrying a couple of sacks of grain. He walked north through the shattered land, the rattle and clank of his knees reverberating across the fields. From his front teeth, two beams of yellow light emerged, which he used to navigate the bombed-out wastelands of Eastern Bushy Park. And on one occasion he would stop, listen, then walk on. His breath ponged with the odour of sauerkraut and paraffin. Through Teddington he carried them, ducking to avoid rifle fire, then along Waldegrave Road and into Cross Deep, where at the boathouse beside the Thames he placed them on the ground. Dankeschön, 
Cornicope said. Sie müssen zahlen davor. Cornicope blanched. He said you must pay, Estasia. Estasia said. Pay? Why? Because you do not speak German, Cornucope turned and asked. How should she pay? Sie und ich müssen spielen. Cornucope gasped. You will play a game with her? Wenn sie gewinnen, ist sie frei. He says, Cornucope said, that if you win, you go free. If you lose, I suppose you will go with him forever, which means... I will die, Estatia said. I will play. What's the game? At once, the great figure sprawled upon the ground, and on the moonlit field of hair and grass, a rectangular ball appeared, into which twenty-four holes had been drilled. Nine men Morris, Cornucope said. Estatia felt no fear. She had played this parlor game all her life. Indeed, had played the Hindu version Nine Nabob Bangra in Mumbai. I'll play, she said, taking the set of twelve red pins. Death took the twelve black pins. The object of the game was to make a line of three pins of her color, while preventing her opponent from achieving the same objective. As the guest, she would play first. She placed a pin into a hole. Death played. Then her, then death, then her. And each blocked the other for eight moves. But they had been playing across the board from right to left. And Astatia, who had set a pin down first, had counted the number of columns left of the edge so that she could both block death and make a full row at the end. But he spotted her plan and was forced to block it. Whereupon she placed a pin that both blocked him and gave her two lines of two. He could not block them both. She had won. She sighed and sat back. Das Beste von drei? Cornucope frowned. The best of three? Estatia laughed. <laughs> Tell him I won the game, she said. Estatia is the winner. And Death shrugged. They were free. They slept for a few hours inside the boathouse. Then, at dawn, ate a breakfast of fruit and stale bread, before heading along York Street, then Richmond Road. As they walked, war departed, and the familiar sight of London streets full of hair returned. At Richmond, the land was once again hairy up to their waists, so they headed for Richmond Railway Station, where they were delighted to see a Nougat locomotive with candy floss emerging from its funnel. It was a matter of 15 minutes to negotiate a deal, allowing them to claim two single tickets on pain of an IOU made out in the name of the Foreign Office. They sat in their seats and relaxed. They were on their way home. The Pearly Queen helped Cheremy get over the first few hours after Mrs. Drowning, then the first few days. As the generals of the Cockney Uprising prepared a solid front line in St. Martin's Lane and Monmouth Street to match the government soldiers in the Charing Cross Road, Cheremy sobbed into the patterned silk dress of the Pearly Queen. All he could see before his mind's eye was that terrible final sight. Mrs. 
her clothes caught on the cubic missile, splashing in panic as the thing dragged her down. The pearly queen let him talk, made him talk when the words ran out, and Cheremy got over the shock and the pain until he was left with a feeling of loss, ache, and a dread of what the future might hold for him now that he was alone again. Eventually, he felt strong enough to think about his immediate future. He dressed in stout clothes, armed himself with Dirk and Swordington, put on a top hat and strode through thick ginger hair from the Uprising's war camp in Covent Garden Piazza to Bedwood's house. It was a fine, warm morning. There was no gentleman smythe at the top of the steps, no open door, no welcoming chatter from half-open windows. The great double doors of the building were shut, stained black with soot and grime, and every window was closed. It being morning, there were no lamps lit inside, but even from his street-side level, Sharmy could sense that the place was deserted. Damn it, he would have to use the geographer's entrance. He struggled through a thick beard of curly brown hair to the rear of the building, where he saw the metal and bakelite porthole that marked the entrance designed for explorers. Wiping algae off the babbage machine and tapping the secret code into it, he shoved open the round door and squeezed through, until he found himself inside the South Sea's chamber, unlit, dusty, silent, Moments later, he stood in the main rear hall, listening. He could hear voices. Damn it, he could hear men talking. Dirk in hand, he crept up the staircase to the second floor, where, through clouds of sunlight-lit dust motes, he saw an open door. It was the Duzestian room. He crept forward, peered around the doorway. They noticed him almost immediately. Shermy, by the great hooves of Simla Bimla, come in, dear chap. There sat Lord Blackenor, Franklin Spartani, and Grabianda Tune, the noted Russia math. But most astonishing was the figure seated alone by a window, working on a tapestry. Juinefir Bedwards. She looked pale, wan her short blonde hair almost ragged, her dress torn and dirt-sullied. But she glanced up when he entered the room and smiled. Shame by all the Nords,' Lord Blackenor said, rising from his seat and shaking Sheremy by the hand. "'Where have you been?' Sheremy hesitated. Now, in his new frame of mind, he was not sure what he felt about the nobility of the suicide club. In a low, wavering voice, he replied, Had a bit of a to-do in hairy London. Very difficult times, dear fellow. Indeed, the blasted cockneys are on the march. Going to be a big battle on the Charing Cross Road. Yes, yes, so I've heard, Jeremy replied. And you fellows? Where's everyone else? Dead or vanished, Lord Blackenor replied. Except for us here. The wager is still on, of course, Jeremy nodded. Not heard from dear old Cornucope, however, nor Velvine. 
Jeremy indicated the other two men. Are we four the last remaining members of the Suicide Club? Seems so. But don't feel too bad. There are chaps still coming out of the woodwork. Yourself, not least. We'll be back in business once those wretched cockneys have been crushed. And what about Sir Hosley? We've not seen him for some considerable time. Jeremy nodded again, affecting a grin, then said, What do the government plan? Lord Gorge has got a war cabinet gang, rallied the troops, you see, got all manner of agents and officers working in the field. Those cockneys are in for a bashing, let me tell you. And London's hair? Still a total mystery. The boffins at the Royal Institute are trying to crack the problem, but, well, nothing concrete yet. Jeremy nodded, across the chamber to Juinefier. You carry on with your breakfast, he said. I need to speak with Lady Bedwards. He strolled across to the window, where Juinefier sat, seating himself on the sofa next to her. The three men were out of earshot, but... Unwilling to reveal himself, he spoke in a quiet voice. How are you, Juinevere? Her charisma, even her beauty seemed reduced, as if by age, though she was but twenty-five. She replied, Fatigued by... She waved a hand at the window and concluded, All this... Me too. I've seen some terrible things. I also, Jeremy, but I'm truly glad to see you here and alive. He perked up a little at this. Tell me, Genevieve, have you suffered? He gave the word special emphasis. She looked at him, frowned, glanced away, then stared at him. You do surprise me. Yes, I suppose I have suffered. He nodded. I've learnt a lot during my adventures, he said, and realise now that I've said inappropriate things to you about the cause you espouse. For that I apologise. A smile illuminated her face, but swiftly faded. I know how you feel, she replied. He did not know if she meant the rumours of his feelings for her, now buried deep, or his conversation to suffering which he realised she would be suspicious of. He replied, I'd do a lot to put you in that war cabinet. Me? A woman? Yes, you, Juinefier, why not? You're intelligent, compassionate, morally sound. Why shouldn't you work for the Prime Minister? She seemed intrigued now. I can hardly believe what I'm hearing, he grinned. Doubtless, but... I'm genuine. You know that's true, Juinefier, cause I've always been sincere. That is true, Jeremy, he hesitated. We need to act. The men of this club are old fossils. Times are changing. She arched her eyebrows and sat back. What do you suggest? Minister without portfolio. You. Lord Gorge would never accept me. War is a man's game. Jeremy leaned close. Not entirely. Recently I chanced upon the joint leaders of the uprising, one of whom is a lady. This pearly queen from the East End? 
However, did you escape her clutches? Jeremy decided to take a risk. If nothing else, Juinevere Bedwards was a woman of suffering, despite her noble status. How else could she have negotiated a deal with the men of the suicide club to avoid having to wear a bag on her head? He replied. The Pearly Queen's revolution isn't just a struggle for food and clean water amongst all this hair. She seeks justice, Schwinnefier. I didn't escape her clutches. I walked away from her of my own free will. I am astounded. You must trust me now. The fate of Harry London lies balanced between two possibilities. I believe I do trust you, Jeremy, he smiled. Good. On the one hand, the government may crush the uprising, and if they do, everything in this country will be as it used to be. For women, you understand? She nodded, her fingers playing with her diamond necklace, her eyes wide, her mouth half open, breathing fast and shallow. Sure now that it was safe to continue, he said, On the other hand, the Cockney uprising may succeed. Personally, I'm not sure if that's a good thing. We need balance. But anything's better than the hidebound system we've got at the moment. Are you a man of the uprising? He shook his head. I'm affiliated. Believe me, I'm no thuggish rebel. But recently I've seen things. And now I want justice for the downtrodden of London, just as much as you do. Hairy London, terrible though the plague is has changed me forever. I can see that it has, she said, her voice almost a whisper. What then will you do now? Jeremy glanced back at the men. I got a little personal problem to solve, a police officer on the lookout for me. Then I'll return to you, she nodded. Take care, Jeremy. He took her hand and kissed it, then returned to the men. To Franklin Spar-Turney, he said, Dear fellow, do you remember that incident you had with the Kensington Strangler? Of course. Who was the detective you took on to solve the case? Why, John Gravelspit, Jeremy said. And where does he reside? Just down the way, in Carey Street at number six. Excellent. Let's hope he's still alive. Franklin chuckled. I imagine he is. Toughest old boot I've ever met. Without delay, Jeremy bade farewell to his suicidal colleagues, departing Bedwood's house using a side window, then heading for Carey Street. At number six he saw an imposing house, dark of stone and heavy of roof, with gothic liniments and a curved spandrels. The front door, solid ebony, was reached by steps of granite. Jeremy ascended, and was about to knock, when he noticed the small brass plate beside the bell-push. J. Gravelspit, private detective to the rich and notorious. You've been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London. Narrated by R.D. Watson. If you're enjoying or hating these hairy adventures, 
why not go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review?